all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 359 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the funniest three-digit number episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that according to the author Douglas Adams of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame, for those who are not already aware, 359 is the funniest three-digit number. And with that wonderful little bit of three-digit number knowledge, I have... Gorse and Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California, would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. It is currently chilly, blusterous Southern California, which I am enjoying very much. But why is 359 the funniest number, according to Hitchhiker's Guide? Honestly, I am not 100% sure. I want to say that he put it in... um in the book somewhere, but apparently it has to be a, it happens to be an example of his fixation with telephone numbers. Um, apparently 359 was the dialing code for his home, uh, area. So yeah, weird. Hilarious. Indeed. I'm sure in context it it's funnier, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to remember where in the books it was because I read the books, but eh. yeah, you know, just something fun to do, I guess, on this uh, Monday before Thanksgiving as we record here on the 25th. Oh my gosh, is this our Thanksgiving episode? It is. Yeah, it's the whole gobble gobble bitches episode. That's but I just right. don't have a way to work that into 359, or else I could have, you know, made it the Gobble Gobble Bitches episode. But This is true. I mean, how would yeah. a... Can, can you do your impression of a turkey gobbling episode 359? <laughs> no. No, I can't. <laughs> but, hey, at least we kind of naturally worked it into the episode twice this time, instead of having to just find a way to shoehorn it in because we've been doing it for the last few years. So right, yes, just like yeah, random so gobbles, turkey sounds. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad we were able to, and and in the first like minute and a half too. I mean, that's that's fantastic. Anyway, how the hell are you, sir? I am doing well. Uh, actually, I wanted to ask you: mm-hmm. Is there a restaurant where you like to go eat at often, like to where the servers? No, like they're a little bit embarrassed that they know who you are because you go in there so often. Mm. Or maybe they're embarrassed for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess I guess not. We've we've really kind of been making it a point lately to to try new restaurants, even if we're in the mood for something familiar, say like Mexican. We're, we're, we've been trying to find new restaurants to go. Um, they recently opened up. Uh, the chain, of course, it's a chain, but they recently opened up a La Madeline here pretty close to us. And so uh, the wife wanted to go and relive her days of enjoying their tomato basil. So we went down there. Um, there's this really kick-ass Thai joint um, pretty close to us that I'm hoping maybe we will get a chance to enjoy over Christmas when you are here uh, called Aloy Aloy. And it is fan freaking tastic. Um, we've been there a couple times. Um, I'm trying to think. Not, not really. Yeah, I'm a big Thai food guy. Uh, both me and the wife love, love, love Thai food. When we lived in West Hollywood proper, we lived pretty close to Thai Town, and there was a great cash only joint there called. I mean, we would call it Samalangalane because we really didn't know what the place was called, and it, <laughs> it there there was a lot of wordage to it that just, it just felt like the name the the name of the place kept going on and on and on. So we just called it Samalangalane and left it at that. Where we live currently, uh, there's a couple good Thai places around town, but literally half a block away, there's an Indonesian restaurant that is pretty close to Thai. You can get still get like the the flat noodles with you know some steak or chicken, and they have really good rice. And we normally go there every other week, so once every two weeks. And lately, uh, with work 
we found ourselves neglecting the grocery store. And we've eaten there like three times in the past week. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure the waitress is hiding from us now because I, we've reached that point to where it would be silly if she did not say anything, you know, when she waited on us. I mean, I guess, but on, on the flip side of that, I mean, as long as you're taking good care of your server, then, I mean, if I were in that position, I'd be like, hell yeah, good tip coming in, nice people, let's go serve them. I told the wife when we were there that maybe I should start tipping them now, mm, since we're, yeah. we're there often. Might be good, might yeah. be good. Uh, although I mean, they, they the, don't uh, like tips here, right? It's kind of like Italy, where they don't appreciate it. Yeah, the special sauce might not be the same, given that they're no longer spitting in the food since you tip them now. I'm kidding, I tip. I tip a solid 3%. <laughs> Which is great. Especially when you can get it on the cheap and it's only like $10. I mean, that's awesome. So have you watched any Thanksgiving or holiday movies yet? Well, somebody interrupted my viewing of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles to record this show. I mean, what a jerk. But other, <laughs> other than that, no. <laughs> <laughs> were you watching it with the family again? Literally, we were sitting, we were watching it. They had just gotten in. Um, Neil had just gotten out of the shower in the hotel room where they discovered they have to share a room. And he gets out of the shower to see the mess that Dell left behind. That is literally where we were at when the when when you texted. Ah, uh, so you didn't even make it the hand between the two pillows. I, I know it was like two minutes away from hand between the pillows, but that's okay. Yes, folks, Matt may or may not have forgotten that tonight was recording, despite us having talked about it, despite Tim is already sending the email with the rundown of the show and our outline and everything. Yes, Matt still managed to forget. So you're all in for a quality Thanksgiving spectacular. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. So, so we really just now had started because we, we had not had time over the weekend with getting, um, just kind of getting last minute things ready. And as I was telling you before we jumped on, uh, to record officially, you know, we got, we got a ton of people coming this week. As always, we love to have, um, have people over and host. And, um, we'll have about 20 here on Thursday. And so I needed to get the house in order. And, um, that's what, and so that's what we did today. And then, of course, went and caught a flick and then was running errands and finally went and got my, my, my first that I bought all on my own with my very own dollars. Finally bought my very first bottle of 16, of Lagavulin 16. Uh, what is that? It is the Ron Swanson scotch. Oh, yes. Okay. And it ain't cheap. Holy crap. Now, it's not the $30,000, $33,000 bottle of scotch that I saw this evening, but it's still expensive. I would have gone for the $30,000 bottle. If you, well, I mean, I mean if, if you it were to budget, me. You know, well, you could do the $33,000. That was the 50-year Glenfiddich. Um, God, I can't even get through a five-year Glenfiddich. <laughs> And uh, now, if you're on, a, if you're more budget conscious and you don't want to spend thirty three thousand dollars, they do have a twenty five thousand dollar bottle of fifty uh, year Glen Levitt. I can't get even through a, a five year Glen Levitt. <laughs> I, I literally have a Glen Levitt and a Glen Fittich. Even when I'm desperate for some alcohol, like on a Friday, mm -hmm. I pour myself a glass of one. I go for it, and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to enjoy this. Dump it out, pour myself a glass of the other, and I just call it quits, and I go to bed. <laughs> well, why do you have them if you don't like them? They were gifts, and were too nice to turn it away. <laughs> well, no, then just wait for someone to come over who is a, who's a scotch drinker. I live in California. They're still around. I live in L.A. I don't hang with find. those people. Those aren't, unfortunately, my 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 friends like to say that they're scotch drinkers, but they're not. I like well, whiskey. It's, I mean, uh, granted, I haven't had enough of it often 
to appreciate the decently priced Glenfiddich or Glen Levitts. Well, now, okay. I, I've had great whiskeys that I thoroughly enjoyed that were nice and smooth, but... Well, here is what I would suggest. Um, you know, not for nothing, and this is not a judgment or to knock anybody who enjoys those, but those are... Oh, gosh, I am going to, like, really, really piss off a lot of scotch drinkers here. Those are kind of like the Budweiser and Miller of scotches. It's like the Jack Daniels of scotch? Not, and, and again, I, and, and I need to clarify here because I can't let it say, I, I cannot let the sentence sit that way. Not because of quality. Not because of quality. They are very finely made scotches. But because they're just the most well known. Like, you hear Glenn Livett. You know, you hear Glenn Fittich, and then you're just like, oh, these must be Scott. Uh, this, you know, that's the Scotch. And then, of course, um, you get into all sorts of different ones. And so, for myself, um, I love Islay Scotches, which are the really heavily peated Scotches. And so, you've got regular, um, so you've got regular Scotches, you've got Highland Scotches, which are kind of the fruitier ones. Um, you've got, uh, Islay scotches, which are the heavily peated ones, the smoky ones. So th there's different kinds of scotches in there, uh, depending on where in Scotland it's made. Um, and then of course, if you are more into just regular whiskeys, then there's plenty of good whiskeys out there. Uh, maybe you like to do the blended kinds of whiskeys. I, uh, there's a really good one. It's not expensive. Usually you can get it for 35 to 40 bucks. Um, it's called Monkey Shoulder. It's a nice blended Scotch whiskey. Um, that's kind of my budget go-to, you know, just kind of have a bottle sitting around. Um, and then if you want like kind of a balanced kind of a Scotch, like they have a really good 12 year, um, which surprisingly, cause it's 12 year called Bowmore. It's great. It's less than 50 bucks. It's a 12 year Scotch and it's, it's like peaty, but it's also, kind of uh silky and fruity on the back end so you kind of get both of them uh it yeah i mean it's just you, you don't have to have just glenn Fittich or just glenn lovett um so i encourage you to look around also um there are some people who believe that the only way you can enjoy scotch is neat i am not one of those people i firmly believe that you can have it on ice um you know so i like it over i like it on the rocks um, so, so yeah, just, um, just wait. Someone will come by who will enjoy your Glen Levitt and Glen Fittich, so you don't have to feel bad about it. It'll be whenever you come out to visit. That's fine. There's a place nearby that has a bunch of whiskeys and scotches, and I got one, and it was pretty pricey for a little tink of this scotch. And the guy was like, your, or the bartender asked me, what's your gut reaction? What, what what does it taste like to you? And my response was the airport. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I said. And that's all he cared to <laughs> to ask. And he was kindly it, uh, gave me my receipt, my bill. I paid for it and I left. <laughs> what was it? Um, was it Lafrague? I have no idea. But oh, okay. I, I got a little, uh, you know, the, the, that mildewy, you know, that taste you get in your mouth from going to like an old airport. You know, you can hints hints of jet fuel, tarmac, even. Okay, no, Lafrague's not that not that bad. Um, Lafrague is um, it, that is a beautiful Scotch. I love that Scotch, uh, and they are unabashedly Islay Scotch, um, and so it, it like you open like you open this thing up. And if you get within five feet of it, you would think that somebody lit a fire. It it just you the smoke inundates you. When I like to say, so it's that a smoky you, scotch. Mm -hmm. So when you drink it, I say it's like having a barbecue in your mouth. Yeah, I. It's I don't fantastic. know. You you really like it? Like you? Oh, it, I love it. Does I the really smokiness do overpower the taste of the actual liquor? No, see, okay, I, I, I do not find that to be the case at all. Uh, the smell is very strong of smoke, and when you get that initial hit, yes, you're just because it's hitting your nose as well as it's hitting your palate. 
it's incredibly smoky. But literally, as soon as you swallow and you just begin to take that breath, all of a sudden, everything on the back end is a little spicy, a little bit fruity, and the just the entire texture changes. And it's... Oh man, that's a great flavor. So you get, so you, so you, you get all the smokiness if you love the smokiness and then the back end is kind of complex and everything. I, I don't know. I think it's fantastic. All right. Well, I know where we are going whenever I'm in town. We're going to go <laughs> into the woodlands <laughs> and okay. we're going to do a little scotch tasting. I, okay. I know of a couple places that, that would be a lot of fun. Well, then that's what we're doing, sir. And I guess, and I guess, uh, looks like we're eating at Aloyo Loy then. So. Hey, look, we have invited the audience. To listen to the libation portion of Thanksgiving, and then they could hear all about our Christmas plans. It's fantastic. We're killing I'm, multiple birds with a single stone. I'll tell you what. You know, when we're on it, we're just on it, Tim. And I by on it. it, you mean completely neglecting our ten favorite people that listen to us. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Um, you know what? Uh, and and just because I guess we probably should, since we're talking about our uh, favorite people wherever they may be, how about if we check the old the old email there? Oh yeah, no, we're totally good. Yeah, we're we're totally good. There's yeah, oh yeah, we're totally good. Man, what's yeah. worse, not getting email or leaving an email sitting there, an unread email sitting there for months? I would say <laughs> probably the latter, especially when it's Diana, because I hate to keep her waiting. She's the reason I pay for the email accounts. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. So, how about we go ahead and jump into what we're here for? What do you say? Let's do it. All right, here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> Okay, so first up from me, uh, from IndieWire.com by way of Dana Harris-Bridson. No, studios won't buy theaters, but small exhibitors fear destruction while DOJ touts innovation. That's right, folks. You might be wondering what the hell that headline is supposed to mean. But allow me to expound, if you will. Dana writes... The Department of Justice announced November 18th that it's begun the process to end the Paramount Consent Decrees, the 1948 agreement that blocked monopolistic studio practices, including owning theaters. In some regards, it's a move that could amount to a shrug. All studios want the option of shorter theatrical windows, but enough to spend hundreds of millions buying and operating an aging business model? No. However, the reason that this matters to the film industry and to the DOJ aren't based on what will happen. It's all about what's now possible. Timothy H. Gray, an attorney who works in antitrust law at Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler, says, quote, The idea is to unfetter the industry and see what develops. Uh, the, let's end quote there. Uh, apparently that the DOJ has determined, quote, the consent decree itself is operating as a restraint on innovation, and all quotes there. Uh, this comes back to us from August of 2018, when the DOJ actually decided to review it, and then they have the comment period. Um, there were 77 organizations that posted their comments, uh, including the National Organization of Theater Owners and the Writers Guild of America West, but the m- largest uh, voices in there, I guess you could say, were very small theater chain owners who were worried about uh, block booking practices and things of that nature. And just if you're wondering what block booking is back in the old studio system days, um, the studios did not truly, up until 1948, the studios did not have to worry about whether a film made money because they could sell the movies no matter what. And so what they would do is they would package their B movies in with one or two of their like really good A movies, the movies that people were dying to see. And so you would have to buy all five or agree to show all five movies and then they would get their revenues and that's how 
and that's what block booking is. Um, once that was no longer deemed legal, well, now every movie had to count. And this is when you see the bean counters, if you will, really looking at a budget versus return uh, and that process that was started. Uh, at any rate, uh, while the DOJ's decision heaps significant uncertainties on an industry in which there is no shortage, the agency isn't picking on Hollywood. This move comes out of an initiative announced in April of 2018 in which the antitrust division said it would end some 1,300, quote, legacy, end quote, decrees that, according to DOG, DOG, <laughs> sorry, DOJ antitrust head Makan Del Rahim only serve to, quote, clog court dockets, create unnecessary uncertainty for businesses, or in some cases, may actually elicit anti-competitive market conditions, end quote. The overarching concern, Del Rahim said in his November 18th speech to the American Bar Association, is serving consumer interests. Um, apparently, he does go on to say that we, uh, quote, we cannot pretend that the business of film distribution and exhibition remains the same as it was 80 years ago, end quote. Um, Dana agrees. She says among the studios covered in the decrees were the long-dead RKO and Republic Studios, and Disney never fell under the decree's jurisdiction. In 1948, it wasn't considered a major studio. Uh, however, the other element that's changed is the DOJ itself. Uh, let's see here. It's apparently... They now favor giving businesses a lot of leeway when it comes to licensing intellectual property and maximizing profits. Under the decrees, certain vertical relationships were illegal per se. Uh, in the 2000s, the Supreme Court found that vertical restraints in some cases helped innovation and consumers. Uh, at this point, it's impossible to assess the potential impact, Dana goes on to say. Maybe it won't change anything, or maybe once the decrees are removed, and there's no longer a specific legal impediment against who owns theaters, or block booking, or circuit dealing, it will inspire changes and innovations that meet, quote, consumer interests, end quote. Maybe that means small theaters will find it impossible to get big movies, and small distributors will lose access to big chains. Maybe studios will try to push their weight and force chains to accept movies with only a 60-day theatrical window. Maybe studios will be so aggressive and greedy that it inspires a flurry of lawsuits. Who knows? Tim, I'm going to stop there. Uh, there's a little bit more of that article, and I did jump a lot through that, so I encourage you to head over to IndieWire.com. Again, by way of Dana Harris Bridson, no, studios won't buy theaters, but small exhibitors fear destruction while DOJ touts innovation. Thoughts on the Paramount Consent Decrees being pulled? I don't know. I definitely feel for the smaller theaters because I could see them getting screwed over big time. And once they're, they start falling through the cracks, then one of these big studios could easily snatch up one of the smaller theaters and you know start running the smaller theater. Um. I, you know, I, the more I think about it, the more I don't like it, to be completely honest. Um, it would be cool to see, you know, if, if Sony had their own theater to show their shitty movies. <laughs> Lately, Sony movies have been, have, have gotten a lot better, but uh, there's, uh, there's a big chunk of time when every Sony movie was kind of crap. Um, but like, uh, even Disney a Disney theater is going to show only Disney movies. Now, do they own Fox? Of course they do. But if a new Marvel movie is going to come out, what's going to be the predominant movie showing at that theater? A Marvel movie. I, I, I just wonder how some of these other films that have independent distribution how those are going to fare like where will those play um because they're going to have to play in some of these theaters if these theaters are owned by the 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 studio therefore they well, might the not get the best representation you know I, that's what i'm i'm just kind of conflicted by all this well i would say that i think i think this is a little bit of a time that we can afford to play wait and see uh, I believe that any move made now would be pretty heavily scrutinized. So I don't think they would, I don't see anybody being foolish enough, even if they were in the background twirling their evil mustache, uh, or collective mustaches. Um, I don't see them trying to do anything ridiculous, but 
I do think that it might actually be a way for smaller exhibitors to actually partner with, and I do mean as a business, partner with small to middling studios, and there's your distribution chain to make sure that both small exhibitors and uh, middling production companies get the exposure and get the business they need so that both can not just survive but potentially thrive right. without having to worry about, well, is AMC going to do this? How long is AMC going to have their artisan films selection? Right. Um, well, it's, it's like what, with uh, Parasite, like you dealt with today. You yeah. were going to go see Parasite because the theater that you were going to go see it at had five showings last week and now none. I suppose that say if Sony owned a theater, they're in more indie films, independent films as Sony classics, Sony Pictures classics. You know, I'm sure those movies would be more prominent at a Sony theater. And same with Fox Searchlight movies. Fox Searchlight has put out some great films. Well, Disney now owns Fox Searchlight, so maybe they would be more inclined to promote those Fox Searchlight, you know, smaller flicks and i mean even in a, another potential benevolent use let's say um even if we let's talk sony disney you know warner brothers or whatever and they own a, a few theaters we won't even say they pick up a chain but they own a few theaters enough that you know we'll say 20 or 30 theaters in the united states right um think of the test screening potential uh, the ability to um, tinker with things or have specialty nights to kind of see what the public is interested in and what the and what trends are starting to develop and be able to actually experiment with that and and know what the public is looking for without having to rely on somebody else who's not going to play with you because they can't afford to have an empty theater. Um, not that everybody, you know, that anybody could have, can afford to have empty theaters all the time, but, um, there's, I mean, there's, there's definitely good ways to utilize this situation, uh, without having to go back to the circuit dealing, without having to go back to block booking and stuff like that. So I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of interested. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's good or bad yet. I, I think we'll just have to kind of wait and see. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What you got, sir? From IndieWire.com, Justice League composer... Dan well, actually, before I read this title, I think it's going to spoil uh, the meat of what I wanted to talk about. Uh, oh, Matt, I asked you before. Um, you did. Are you familiar with the Justice League Zack Snyder cut? Because as we uh, all know, there was a death in Zack Snyder's family. He had to leave production. Joss Whedon came in, reshot most of the film, uh, and we got what we got. I I have long heard of this fabled cut, um, and people have been saying that they want to see it. It's been rumored to exist, so I know of the story of it. But I, given that the key people involved, which would either be the studio or and or Snyder, have been silent on the issue. I mean, it's all conjecture. The studio has been silent. But not only has many of the actors come out saying that there has been a that there is uh, an existing Snyder cut of the film, uh, special effects people who worked on both versions of the film came out saying that there is in fact uh, a Zack Snyder cut of the film. Even Zack Snyder has come out and said that there is a finished cut of the movie. However. Is all the special effects been completed for his version? Probably not. But people are saying that if not all has been completed, at least 85-90% has. However, according to IndieWire.com, posted seven hours ago, November 25th, Justice League composer Danny Elfman baffled by Snyder Cut, saying, quote, he never finished it. And this is what it says. Jason Momoa claims he has seen the Justice League Snyder Cut, but according to composer Danny Elfman, whatever Momoa saw was not likely unfinished. Or, excuse me, was most likely unfinished. In a new interview on the Big Lebowski podcast, Elfman doubts that a releasable version of the Snyder Cut exists. 
many comic book movie fans were left wondering whether or not the Snyder Cut's release was imminent after actors like Ben Affleck and Gal Gadot championed its release on social media November 17th, the two-year anniversary of the film's theatrical release. Elfman replaced Junkie XL as Justice League composer after director Joss Whedon was brought in to finish the movie following Zack Snyder's exit. Quote, well, the thing is, he never finished it. So, I don't know quite how they do a Snyder cut. He had a tremendous tragedy which forced him to not finish the film. I don't quite understand this, because it wasn't like he was fired, in that there is a director's cut that is a finished movie, and that the studio fired him and then hired Joss, end quote, said Danny Elfman. He then continued with, quote, When Joss came on the film, he stepped in with only a few days' notice to pick up the helm because of the terrible tragedy that happened. So it is kind of a unique situation. I mean, there is definitely other movies where the director was fired and a studio radically changed the movie because they didn't like it. And as a fan, you go, I wonder what the director did before the studio changed the movie. But I'm not really aware of how the dynamic would really apply here, end quote. Kevin Smith shared similar thoughts on the Snyder Cut earlier this year when he said that the Snyder Cut exists, but only as a rough cut or assembly cut of the footage Snyder shot during production. Visual effects had not been completed by the time Snyder left, and Whedon joined the production. Whedon oversaw post-production and directed a handful of reshoot scenes that drastically changed the tone and story of what Snyder had planned. Junkie XL revealed last month he completed his Justice League score before Snyder left, but it was dropped in favor of Elfman's work. End all quotes there. Matt. Do you think there possibly is a Snyder cut? And even if it is an assembly cut, would you be interested in seeing it? I guess, I mean, this is definitely some information that I was not aware of in terms of what Elfman is saying, the the chronology of it is. Um, But I had always assumed that when they kept saying there was a Snyder cut, it's not that Snyder was fired, like Elfman saying, and that's what... I. It was always my understanding, I guess, just the way I read it or interpreted it, not that anyone necessarily said it this way, was that after everything was said and done, yeah, Whedon had, uh, you know, shot what he shot and, and had everything put together so that the film would release, but that Snyder came back in and then created his own cut with all existing footage, including what Whedon had shot. And so, and this was done, and this was done for him, not necessarily for the public, because clearly he would have never gotten it done in time for the movie to come out. That's what I thought was going on. Not that it was a work print, or not that he was doing something out of spite, or that anybody was mad at him, or the studio was, I mean, of course, yeah, I mean, good, good lord, his, his daughter passed away. Nobody's expecting anybody to work past that. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so I guess hearing it the way Elfman's saying it, yeah, I, I wouldn't understand how it was possible either. That being said, I would be interested to see what um, Snyder had ultimately wanted to have happen to see how the story would have played out had he been able to finish. Of course, I think it would be interesting just to see. Um, and if it's a work print, it's a work print. I would be interested to see it, but I don't need to see it. I'm actually pleased with the way Justice League turned out on the whole. Um, I either gave it a three or a three and a half at the time. And I stand by that. It's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, I, I think it's just, I, I think tonally they were finally getting on the right track with it. So, yeah. I'm I'm good, but Danny Elfman's side of the story makes a lot more sense now. I know how good rough cuts can look. There's enough, usually, CGI there to get an idea of what is going on. Um, if there's no CGI, storyboard usually pops up, or rough, uh, not schematics, but 
animatics will come up in place of where the CGI is supposed to be. I would just love to see the tone that Snyder was going for. Because I have a feeling it was going to be more like Batman v Superman. Um, I've seen the director's cut of Batman v Superman, and I thoroughly enjoyed it for what it was. I did not like Justice League. I thought it was a jumbled mess. I did not like Clark Kent super Superman storyline at all. I hated the special effects that they used to cover up his mustache. <laughs> you know, so I would love to see a, a, a all version. In agreement there. Yeah, I would love to see a version of the film where I wasn't constantly distracted by things like that. I can get past the idea that I'm watching a rough cut of a movie, an assembly cut, because I know it's an assembly cut, and I'm not going to be distracted by a digital erase of a fake mustache or of a mustache, you know? So that's where I land. But if you want to read this article again and, and look more into uh, Danny Elfman's comments, check out IndieWire.com. Justice League composer Danny Elfman baffled by Snyder Cut. He never finished it. Right on. All right. Well, this is the last piece of news that I have here from RollingStone.com by way of Jason Diamond. Why Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is the ultimate Thanksgiving movie. That's right, folks. Thanksgiving is all about the buildup. This is what Jason says. You wait for it, that long weekend that you know will include family, maybe some football, plenty of food, and then leftovers and sales the day after that. Everything looks great in those weeks leading up to the fourth Thursday in November until it all goes to hell with that long drive probably filled with holiday traffic and the drunk relatives whose opinions you don't really care to hear about. The anticipation of the holiday is fun. The drama that ensues during is not. That's one of the many brilliant things about 1987's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, the last truly great movie that John Hughes took on the triple job of writer, producer, and director before slowly fading into the background, eventually all but vanishing from public view until his death in 2009. The build-up to the holiday weekend that Steve Martin's Neil Page experiences as he tries to make it home from New York City to Chicago looks about as enjoyable as Dante's exploration of the Inferno. And if we're using that classic poem as an analogy, Del Griffith, played masterfully by John Candy, makes a horrible Virgil on the duo's hellish journey back to the Windy City. Of course, this all equals comedic gold for viewers. Martin and Candy together is really the kind of pairing people dream of. The former, a few years completely removed from his stand-up days, was starting to inch away from zanier works like The Jerk and The Three Amigos and move closer toward his more family-friendly fare of the 1990s. For the latter, it was the start of a fruitful working relationship with Hughes, one that would see the SCTV alum go on to star in The Great Outdoors, Uncle Buck, and a small role in Home Alone. And for Hughes, it was the beginning of a new phase in his own career as well. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was his first attempt to make films aimed at more adults and kids, moving away from the teen movies that helped him make his mark in Hollywood. The Great Outdoors and Uncle Buck were both successful at the box office, though 1988's She's Having a Baby was a critical and commercial letdown, and the director would close out the decade by successfully revisiting the Griswolds, a family based off the short stories he wrote for National Lampoon in the late 1970s. Christmas Vacation was the first time Hughes would use the holiday as an inspiration for his work. He'd return to December 25th as the basis for the first two Home Alone films, as well as the somewhat underrated and way darker than you might remember remake of Miracle on 34th Street. But while Planes didn't bring in the same overflowing bags of box office loot as the saga of Macaulay Culkin torturing two idiot burglars, it did end up as something else. A Thanksgiving classic. And the article does happen to go on for quite a bit, really, and kind of brings you back um, for the, for, you know, from the different aspects of the film and really kind of reaching into the idea that it's that they didn't overplay either Neil or Dell. Steve and John played these roles respectively with the exact amount of aplomb necessary for the characters to be successful. It's not that Neil was the trademark advertising yuppie of the 80s. He could understand just how 
insufferable he was being, even though he had every right to be irritated with most of Dell's antics. Meanwhile, Dell truly does not mean any harm and realizes that he can be overbearing and tries to compensate for that so that what you have are these two very human people who keep having absolutely inhuman things happen to them in a comical setting all while trying to get home for thanksgiving and i think that's where the where as jason puts uh puts it the build-up occurs because when the movie ends the movie ends with them arriving at the door and you don't have to wonder whether or not people get irritated at the political discussion or whether or not there's a fight or whether or not people are uh you know gonna argue about this or that or have an old family wound to get reopened um or the latest passions ignited for the wrong reasons they made it home the build-up was getting them there and i think that's the brilliance that jason is jason diamond is referring to in the article and i wholeheartedly agree um and so i don't know i read the article it's so so good um there's even a really great um article you can go back and read um what Roger Ebert had written about it uh, as well. It is absolutely fantastic. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, you know, it's just a fantastic way of appreciating Thanksgiving and appreciating it for what it's meant to be, which is that feeling that you get of being together, not all the minutia that tends to drag it down. Uh, Tim thoughts. I love the movie. I remember watching it for the first time when I was, uh, uh, seven, (laughs) six, maybe. I mean, I was young and I've always, always loved it from the very beginning. I was actually able to watch the, uh, the FN scene, you know, when he's, when Neil's pissed off in the airport and he's just cussing out the poor rental car lady there in the terminal. Uh, it's always a classic. I watch this all the time. So, I guess without further ado, we should do a couple movies. What do you say, sir? Let's do them. All right, folks, here we go. It's the movie we Okay, and just due to the way things worked out, it looks like I've got a movie for you, and Tim's got a movie for you. So, do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Well, let's see here. I There's not much I can say about my movie, because if I reveal too much, it'll give away uh, what, what makes this movie worth seeing, in my opinion. Oh, okay. Um... Well, then I guess you should go first and then just give us, uh, uh, maybe is the trailer, because it's foreign, so is it even worth trying to do a trailer and then just give us your rating or? Oh, no, it's straight up South Korean. Okay. Well, yeah, I didn't know it was foreign. I just didn't know if they, I guess, so it's all subtitled then? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then, okay, so no trailer. Uh, the, the movie's Parasite. Uh, let's see here. Pull it up. Uh, it's directed by Bong Joon Ho. Um, stars who, who directed he did Snowpiercer, uh, which we both enjoyed. He did yes. Okja for Netflix a couple years ago. Oh, okay, very cool. Uh, let's see, stars uh, Song Kang Ho, uh, Lee Soon Kyun, Cho Yo Jong, uh, Choi Woo Sik, and Park So Dam. Uh, not that you would necessarily know any of those people, but hey. Uh, it, it's also apparently a black comedy thriller film, and yeah. So, without spoiling anything as best as you can, sir, can you can you give us a rating and a recommendation on it? Sure. So, I'm gonna read you the basic synopsis according to Wikipedia here. Parasite, a 2019 South Korean black comedy thriller film directed by Bong Joon 
Ho, who also wrote the film's story and co-wrote the screenplay with Han Ji Wan. The film stars everybody that Matt just said and follows a young man from a poor household who begins to tutor a rich family's daughter. Alongside his parents and sister, he slowly starts to infiltrate their personal lives. Uh, as I briefly mentioned, Bong Joon-ho directed Okjaw, Snowpiercer. He also did the sci-fi film from uh, early to mid-2000s, The Host. He did the horror film Mother. Based on my synopsis, my brief synopsis, and if you're familiar with Snowpiercer or even Okjaw, you might be able to come to some sort of conclusion that that Bong Joon-ho likes to tell stories about class struggle. Snowpiercer, it's about people of varying classes on a post-apocalyptic train trying to survive a harsh winter wherever uh, they're at, I suppose. And on the back of the train, you have the poor working class folk. And as they start to work towards the front of the train, they encounter all the upper class, upper echelon, uh, wealthy people that are better taken care of. Akja, of course, the little girl who has the creature, is the lower-class girl, and she's having to compete against uh, the upper echelon scientific government, I suppose. Um, so, class struggle. Parasite is no different. And if you're wondering, why is this movie called Parasite? Is it a sci-fi film? Is it a horror? No. I I'm thinking that as the guy is poor tutoring the rich chick and then worms his way that's the parasite he's exactly being parasitical off the you know and le it's leeching not off the rich family. and it's not just him it's the his whole family warming their way into the lives of the rich family but i can't tell you how because it's a lot of fun to watch the movie is two hours and 15 minutes something like that and I was entertained 100% from beginning to end. Uh, this movie has won a lot of awards this past year. Uh, it is the highest grossing South Korean film, uh, especially here in the U.S. I think it's raked in $20 million in the U.S. already. Bong Joon-ho is an incredibly talented director and writer. And if you enjoyed any of his other films, you will enjoy Parasite. It's charming. The characters are likable. The story itself is infectious. And the visual style is very intriguing. How they capture the struggling class and then how the camera captures the upper class. That's all I can say. I don't even want to go into what I didn't really like about the film. Uh, Matt, I hope you do watch this film at some point. I'm sure uh, you'll be forced to, as I'm sure it'll be nominated for uh, a foreign language Oscar and even quite possibly a best directing Oscar, which I think he hands down deserves. We can go more in depth on it then. But I give it a four and a half out of five. It is a intriguing film. All right, well then, I'm going to go ahead and close this out with A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Hey, I'm looking for Fred Rogers. In here. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be? My neighbor. Hello, neighbor. Mr. Rogers. I'm here to interview you. It is so nice to meet you. You okay? I'm profiling Mr. Rogers. Lloyd, please don't ruin my childhood. This piece will be for an issue about heroes. Do you consider yourself a hero? We are trying to give the world positive ways of dealing with their feelings. Yeah? Like what? There are many things you can do. You can play all the lowest keys on a piano at the same time. You love broken people. Like me. Sometimes we have to ask for help. And that's okay. 
the best thing we can do is to let people know um, that each one of them is precious. Okay, so we've got ourselves a 2019 American drama film. This is directed by uh, Marielle Heller, and it stars Tom Hanks, Matthew Reese, uh, Susan Kelechi Watson, and Chris Cooper. Uh, what we have here is a film very, very loosely based on a story that journalist Tom Junod wrote uh, back in the 90s, uh, either late 90s, early 2000s. Um, for, uh, Esquire, if I remember correctly, because it's Esquire in the, uh, it, it, Esquire is the magazine in, in the movie, but I'm not 100% sure if it was Esquire in real life as well. Uh, about a basically kind of a jaded journalist who has to go and interview Fred Rogers for a hero piece, and it ends up kind of changing his life. Well, the movie is a, reimagining of this and okay um for whatever reason they chose to not go with the original story uh which was already fascinating enough but uh, fine um the presentation of the film is that of light fantasy slight farcical elements but a true, um, I guess, estrangement drama. There we go. I think that's a, a familial estrangement drama at its core. Um, basically, Lloyd Vogel, who is the journalist, Tom Junod in this film. Uh, see, they changed names and everything. It's really just kind of weird. Um, He's got his own, uh, he's got his own problems. He ends up having to interview, um, Fred Rogers and Fred Rogers takes an interest in him. He's got his own problems with, uh, estrangement issues with his father and he's just become a dad. And so now he's got to work all this out while he's interviewing Fred Rogers for this piece. And that's kind of the deal. Um, without spoiling it for those who would like to go and see the film, um, I will say that despite its presentation style, um, for example, they do all of the transition shots. They actually switch to what it looked like when they would do transition shots in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, so that means the actual aspect ratio of the screen switches back down to 4 by 3 <laughs> and this little models and stuff that, uh, you know, are, are kind of stop motion models that they would use and transition back and forth. Um, so there's really interesting decisions being made in terms of the storytelling, but it kind of, it kind of takes the magic out of Mr. of what Mr. Rogers does or what Fred Rogers did on the whole, just so that they can kind of make the estrangement side for Lloyd Vogel, played by Matthew Reese, uh, to make it more compelling. And it's definitely got some good moments, but on the whole, it just kind of feels like they're forcing the Mr. Rogers side of things, even though when they're not in studio, um, Tom Hanks's portrayal of Fred Rogers is definitely very good. It's very earnest. Um, and it's not overwrought, but it is weird to hear him feminize himself a little bit, um, to, to put a little bit of an effeminate, twist on his own voice and he's and again this is not tom hanks trying to do a fred rogers impression uh he is not trying to do an impersonation by any stretch of the imagination and i don't want to make it sound like that but it's very clearly not natural for him to speak in this way and then and and there are times when he when he just kind of slips and lets it and just kind of goes into his natural register. And honestly, I think he should have just played it that way the whole time. Um, so 
when when you're seeing Fred Rogers in real life, um, or you know, air quotes, real life in terms of the story as it plays against Lloyd Vogel, the character of Lloyd Vogel, again played by Matthew Reese, it's much better than when they're trying to have Mister Rogers be Mister Rogers, especially when they're sprinkling the elements of the of the show directly into Lloyd's life. Um, and I don't want to say anything more than that without spoiling stuff. Um, and I think that because it's so well acted, the estrangement of the characters, uh, is believable and well played. Chris Cooper does a very good job of playing Vogel's father, Jerry. Um, but it, it doesn't, but the story itself doesn't really bring anything new to the table. And I think perhaps maybe it would mean more if I did not know the article in question and if I didn't know so much about Fred Rogers and perhaps if I hadn't already seen the documentary two years ago last about year it. was it last year I felt yeah, like it was, it was December year. 2017 I'm pretty sure we talked about it la- just last year I mean it might have so, like had a limited release last December but we oh no I believe you I just for some yeah. I felt like it was 2017 but either way but yeah but either way so um it just kind of colored my perception of the film and it was hard to shake. Um, but it is well acted, um, and it is well crafted. I just don't think it was as strong as it could have been. So I give it a four out of five. I think it's definitely worth checking out, but I do not go into this movie thinking you're going to see a Fred Rogers movie. That would be the only thing I would caution. Do not go into this film thinking it's a Fred Rogers movie. It's not. Um, it is definitely a story about the character who is a journalist who interacts with Fred Rogers. Um, and I think you'll have a really good time. So four out of five, and I guess that's what's up. Yeah, I was wondering, because I was reading this article, they were talking about predicting the Oscar nominations, and they were saying, for sure, Tom Hanks for Best Supporting Actor. And I'm like, wait a second, Best Supporting Actor? But he is playing Fred Rogers, in the Mr. Rogers movie. So knowing right. that it's mainly about the other guy uh, makes a lot more sense. Indeed. Indeed. So when it comes to Tom Hanks portraying popular people, um, do, I mean, did you like him? I mean, you took issue with I, him as Walt Disney. Same issue. I just, he's, he's not... Um, it's not that he's not a good actor. It, it, it's truly not that he is not a good actor. He is a phenomenal actor. The problem is, is that he's not an actor with which you can, you can put in an already famous face. I'm not saying he could never do a biopic. Um, what I'm saying is, is that when you already have someone who is inundated into the, not even just pop culture, but into the fabric of Americana, such as Walt Disney, such as uh, Fred Rogers, you can't have someone who is already themselves ingrained into the fabric of Americana, like Tom Hanks, portraying these people and expect it to go... um flawlessly um he does not disappear into the role he looks like he looks and sounds and acts like tom hanks taking on a character but unfortunately it's a character you already know and it's a character that you have every preconceived notion of expecting to to look and act and feel and do a certain way because you've seen it already and so again i I, he does a very fine job just like he did with walt disney he does a very fine job of portraying you know a, a person trying to play this character but he doesn't become the character and it's very obvious you're watching tom hanks play fred rogers it was very obvious you were watching tom hanks play walt disney um whereas with like with sully he was sure he was very well known from the incident with the plane crash into the river where he, where this pilot saved everybody. Um, yeah, he did the talk show circuit, but 
he wasn't a consistently known quantity all the time. So it was easy. Same with Captain Phillips. Yeah, same with Captain Phillips. So it was easy for you to have him, to watch him disappear into this character. You, you don't know Sullivan. You don't know Phillips. Uh, there's not enough for you to get anything more than a baseline out of what happened from the incidents you saw around the news story itself. I mean, come on, this freaking Walt Disney. He had his own television show. Um, he, in, you know, he, he was in movies and, or involved with movies and, and had everything where it was always his face, his voice, his behaviors, um, that we still know and can tell today. Same thing with Fred Rogers. You can't, you can't not immediately know who Fred Rogers is upon looking at him. So, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm old. Whatever. But it's the same problem. Uh, Tom Hanks is too is too much of a known quantity to play someone like that. And I and I guess you might have that problem no matter who you chose. So why not take someone who's just going to assume the mantle and not worry about it? You know. Um. But yeah. Anyways. Four. It's still four. It's still a four-star movie. Uh, I don't want. I don't want you to say don't. Don't watch it. But yeah. <laughs> ne- next week's movies are Knives Out and The Irishman. Um, where, you know, I can't wait for you to see Knives Out, and I'm really excited to see The Irishman. I'm. I'm sure you are too. Irishman from the the three hours and thirty minutes from the comfort of your own couch. Yep. Which I am kind of looking, I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. I'm hoping I get out of work early on Wednesday uh, to have time to watch it before going out of town. Oh yeah, mine. I'm not, I'm going to be watching that um, at midnight right, Tuesday. No, no, I'm going to be watching it on Sunday evening, right before, uh, right after I finish doing uh, the little bit of work I have to do to get set up for next week. Oh, so there that you this go. way, so that this way, I can get my little work, get my work out of the way that I have to do for the week uh, to get ready for next week, and then I can finish off this wonderful vacation with hopefully a phenomenal movie. So, ladies and gents, you now know what we're doing before, during, and after <laughs> Thanksgiving this year. Stay uh, tuned. You're welcome <laughs> to hear what the wonders we have planned for the week after Thanksgiving. All right, folks. Well, without further ado, I guess we're down to the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on. You set him up and I'll knock him back, Lloyd. One by one. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. Say, Lloyd, it seems I'm temporarily light. <laughs> How's my credit in this joint, anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we're, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitWit12345. And, of course, come aboard that information super high when tracked on Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorites on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old Spotify and Google Play and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Chris Cooper, I get to say this. I don't want to go bald. I don't know what's coming up next. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, there we are, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur.
it's Chinatown. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.